Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real Steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show. Episode 84. In honor of Randy Moss, the most devastating deep threat I ever saw, including Tyreek. And by the way, 1998, before that draft, I campaigned for the Dallas Cowboys to take Randy Moss. At number eight in the first round, they took Greg, Greg Ellis? Really? I was working in Chicago in 1998 covering Jordan's Bulls. I campaigned for the Chicago Bears to please take Randy Moss at fifth overall. Curtis Enos? Seriously? This, as always, is the un-undisputed everything I cannot share with you during the two-and-a-half-hour debate show that is undisputed. Today, as opposed to last week, as you might remember, I will do nothing but blow through your great questions, your probing, provocative questions about throwing Dak's jersey into the trash again and about who filmed said trash throw, about whether I have completely given up on this Cowboys season. I have not. About If I work out harder after Dallas Cowboy losses, especially of that magnitude, I do, about what I pack every morning in my little black bag that I carry with me to work, I'll give you all the gory details, about what my dressing room is really like inside, about my screenplay, about the person in life I most look up to, and about whether living in LA, I'm a beach person or not. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. I'm going to open with one of your questions. This is from Nick from State College, Pennsylvania. We know who plays there. How much are you already looking forward to the Cowboy bye week in two weeks? Asks Nick from State College, PA. To answer this question, I'm going to flash you back to 1970. And no, Nick, 
I am not looking forward to the bye week in two weeks. I'm actually looking forward to beating the Los Angeles Chargers out here in L.A. next Monday night and getting back on a roll. Who knows? Maybe even a Super Bowl roll. Maybe I'm just whistling through the graveyard. Maybe I'm going completely over the delusional cowboy fan edge. But I do cling to what happened the first time my Dallas Cowboys ever went to a Super Bowl, made it to a Super Bowl. That was in 1970. A story I told in detail, some gory detail. In the first cowboy book I wrote, it's called God's Coach. It's a story I'm going to recount for you now because it applies to right now. There is precedent for this in cowboy history. There is Super Bowl precedent for what could happen right here, right now. I flash you back to a Monday night, November 16th, 1970. That night, as a freshman at Vanderbilt University, I watched this Monday night game on the little tiny black and white TV, all I could afford at that point, in my dorm room in Barnard Hall. We called it Barnyard because it wasn't much, didn't have central air conditioning. It gets hot and it gets cold. Had heaters in the room. It's pretty shaky, but I loved it anyway. But I watched on my little tiny black and white TV. I don't know. It's probably like the screen's three or four inches by three or four inches. I watched that Monday night Dallas Cowboy game, at least for a while. They lost that game on Monday night football, 38 to nothing at home at the Cotton Bowl against the then St. Louis Cardinals, who rolled up that night 242 yards rushing. Remind you of anything recently? 242. My quarterback that night was Craig Morton, who was the original Dak Prescott, the quarterback who could have. Sensational games followed by head scratchers. Way up and way down. The original DAC was Craig Morton. That night, Craig Morton, in a home game on Monday Night Football, went 8 of 26 for 116 yards. Remind you of anybody? 8 of 26 for 116 yards. It became known as the Monday Night Massacre. Up in the booth was the great Don Meredith, the original Cowboy quarterback, at least a little after Eddie LeBaron. He was actually the first one. He was about five feet, seven inches tall. But Dandy Don took over. Near great things started to happen. But before they could, Don checked out. He couldn't take God's coaches. I called him Tom Landry segued right into the Monday night booth with Howard Cosell forming the greatest Monday night team ever. I love Troy and I love Joe. That They're really good at what they do. But listen, 
Don Meredith, ha <laughs> Humble Howard, whew. Frank Gifford. That was Keith Jackson that night. But Don Meredith was known for singing Turn Out the Lights, The Party's Over. I would sing it for you, but I can't sing. But Dandy Don was singing that in the third quarter of that Monday night game. In the fourth quarter, Cowboy fans started chanting, we want Meredith, we want Meredith. He was still young enough to play at that point. And on live TV to the nation on Monday Night Football, Dandy Don said, you're not getting me back out there. He wanted no part of it. The Cowboys that night fell to five and four. They had also lost a, a previous game about a month earlier at Minnesota, 54 to 13. 54 to 13 and 38 to nothing? Really? And then that was about to happen? That night in the locker room, several of the Dallas Cowboys told me that their leader, the great Bob Lilly, one of the greatest defensive linemen ever, sat back near his locker holding court and said to a number of players within earshot after the media had cleared out, we got them right where we want them. And pardon my language on this, but Bob Lilly said, we're going to trick fuck them. Okay? I can go with that. So, the next day, Tuesday, Tom Landry, whose film sessions were infamous, were torturous. A lot of the players said they had to take drugs just to get through the film sessions because they were so brutal. He was so hard on individuals running the tape back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Humiliating, devastating individuals in front of the entire team watching the tape. But that day, according to many eyewitnesses, Landry walked in, he looked lost, he looked befuddled, he looked soul-shaken, and he says to the team, Y'all can just go out and play flag football if you want to. And he tossed down his clipboard and walked out of the film session without rolling tape. And guess what they did? For the first time, those Dallas Cowboys, who never had much fun playing football under Landry, went out and had fun. They started playing flag football out on the practice field. They just ch chose up teams and... Offensive linemen were throwing passes to defensive linemen. They just had fun, played all afternoon flag football. Bob Lilly told the team when the flag football ended, just remember, he doesn't win games, we do. Tom Landry didn't win games, they did. And in my book, God's Coach, I quote a psychologist who often counseled Tom Landry. His name was Don Beck, late, great Don Beck. And I'll read you the quote that I used in my book. Tom, as in Landry, always needed an external event 
to motivate the football team. He couldn't really inspire players by what he said or he did. Remind you of anybody? Don Beck went on. He needed something dramatic to happen to bring the team together. Something like 38 to nothing? Hmm. Interesting. He also needed a second external event to happen, which certainly nobody planned because it's one of the weirdest, creepiest events that's ever happened to a Dallas Cowboy. They've had many, many, too many players who have broken laws, run afoul of the cops, but this one nobody saw coming. This one involved an idol of mine. This one happened on the Thursday after the Monday night ahead of the next game, which was going to be at Washington the next Sunday. This was on Thursday after practice. Player in question was Lance Rensel. For you younger listeners, viewers, you won't know him. He was a great football player. He played for the team I grew up loving in Oklahoma City and Norman, Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Sooners. In fact, Lance Rensel grew up on the wealthy side of Oklahoma City in what was called Nichols Hills. Those people had more than Nichols. He went to a private school called Cassidy where the rich kids went. I went to Vanderbilt with many of them, some of them anyway, not, not a whole lot, but maybe six or eight of them the Oklahoma City contingent, including one private school, I'm sorry, one public school kid, me. Lance Rensel went from Cassidy, the University of Oklahoma, was an All-American as a running back and a receiver. 6'2", 200, golden boy, handsome, built, and could fly. First got drafted by Minnesota, but Dallas eventually traded for him. And that year for the Cowboys, he was really good playing the position that Landry called flanker. We don't call it that anymore, but he was a wide out. Led the team in receiving, among the league leaders in receiving, opposite the great Bob Hayes. And Lance Rensel at that point was married to a starlet, to a Taylor Swift kind of starlet. Although this starlet did not sing, she acted. She was a TV star on variety show after variety show. Her name was Joey Heatherton. She was a sex symbol, as was he. They were the the sports power couple, a la... Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. And yet, while she was working, acting, appearing in L.A., Lance was living with his parents who had moved from Nichols Hills to Highland Park, which is the old money section, the big money section of Dallas, Texas. So on his way home that afternoon from practice, about 4.15 on that Thursday, Lance Rinsel pulled up 
in front of a yard in Highland Park in which a 10-year-old girl was playing, and Lance Rensel exposed himself to said 10-year-old. Charges were pressed. Story went public. The team was obviously shocked. Lance Rensel, on Saturday evening with the team in Washington, profusely apologized in a team meeting. A lot of the players were torn up and deeply conflicted because they liked the heck out of him. And I was told that a lot of people in the meeting, a lot of the players patted him on the back and said, way to go, but, but who can get comfortable with what he did? Nobody. He never again played for the Dallas Cowboys. They traded him away shortly thereafter. The creepiest story of all came from a book that Lance later wrote called When All the Laughter Died in Sorrow. He said his parents had a schnauzer named Scarlett O'Hara. And soon after that incident, Scarlett O'Hara broke free and ran. And for a while, they couldn't find Scarlett O'Hara. So they drove around the neighborhood, and guess where they found her? She was in the front yard of that 10-year-old girl. And Lance Rensel wrote in his book, this would happen several more times. Their schnauzer named Scarlett O'Hara would escape and run straight to the front yard of the 10-year-old Lance Rensel exposed himself to. I get goosebumps when I read that. I got goosebumps when I read it last night. But again, those teams, that team, like this team now, needed external events to unify the team, to bring it closer together. And 38 to nothing, and Lance Rensel brought it closer together. Somehow, that team, coming off its flag football game, just threw up its hands and said, let's just go play football. Let's stay together, even without Lance Rensel. And they beat Washington their arch rival, 45 to 14, and they went on a Super Bowl roll. They won out. They beat Detroit at home in a playoff game. They went to San Francisco and beat the 49ers there, 17 to 10. They went to the Super Bowl, and they did lose to Baltimore, to the Colts of Baltimore, 16 to 13 on a last-second field goal. I watched it. I cried. They lost it to a last-second Jim O'Brien field goal back in the days of straight-on kickers, not soccer-style, but toe-first kickers. And he booted it through from 32 yards to win the game 16-13. to 
there was controversy. There was a recovered fumble early in the second half that I don't think Baltimore recovered, but I'll never know for sure. Craig Morton was not very good as the Dak Prescott of his day. He was a grand total of 12 of 26 for 127 yards. 11 of his 12 completions went to his running backs. That won't work. Bob Hayes, the deep threat, caught one ball for 41 yards, but only one. So they did lose, but they got there in spite of, or maybe because of, 38 to nothing coming off 54 to 13 at Minnesota. And if you will allow me this before I move to the next question, I did reread this story last night in a book I will hold up for those of you who might be watching right now. This is my first book, God's Coach. The Hymns, Hype, and Hypocrisy of Tom Landry's Dallas Cowboys. I'm not much of a self-promoter, but allow me to say that I missed a good bit of sleep last night because I started reading the section on 38 to nothing and Lance Rensel, and I couldn't stop reading. And I turned page after page after page, and I thought, man, forgive me for this, but I thought, this is really good. This was a very special project for me, a very special creation for me. My editor named Jeff Newman at Simon & Schuster, after we had completely edited this book and he did very little editing to it, told me this is going to hit the market and just explode. He had had several big bestsellers prior to my union with Jeff. And it did very well, but it didn't explode. It went up against Tom Landry's autobiography in the marketplace. And I'm sure a lot of people, given the choice, went for straight from the horse's mouth as opposed to the anti-Landry book. There's a lot of good about Tom Landry in this book, and there's a lot of truth about Tom Landry in this book. So I'm not promoting it. It still sells pretty well on wherever it is, Amazon. But I just wanted you to know how much it meant to me last night to lose one hour of the four hours I usually sleep ahead of Undisputed to rereading what I wrote in 1989. That brought tears to my eyes. Back to your questions. This is Jason from New Orleans who asks, how many times has the DAC jersey been picked out of the dang trash can? Okay, I'll tell you, Jason. In 2018, I threw it in the trash can after a Monday night loss to Tennessee at Jerry World. 
deck was horrible. But that week they had acquired Amari Cooper, who played in the game but had barely practiced, was no factor. And after that game, in large part because of Amari, Dak to Amari, they took off. And I went back <laughs> later. I'd done it that night, obviously, but I went back and ceremoniously took Dak's jersey out of the trash a little later that season because I had not left it in the trash that season. But last year, after the San Francisco loss at San Francisco in the playoffs, in which Dak stunk, I fired his jersey into my trash can and I left it to be taken out with the trash. Going into this year, I just had a weird good feeling about Dak. I thought, eh, the defense can help carry him, that the defense will actually carry us as far as we can go. But I thought Dak could at least stay out of the way, could at least be a game manager. So I got a new Dak jersey. And Sunday night, after that thing in San Francisco, that 42 to 10 thing, it could have been 62 to 10. After I fired my new Dak jersey into the trash, it stayed there. 10 minutes later, my wife Ernestine walked in and said, you know what? Just leave it. And I said, done. Done, done with Dak. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real Steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is Chad from Philadelphia. Need to know, does Ernestine film the videos of you throwing the jerseys in the trash can? Yes, she does, Chad from Philadelphia. Jonathan Berger, who is the showrunner for this show that you are listening to or watching, has always said of my wife, Ernestine, that she has the steadiest hand in the business when it comes to shooting videos. Remember, time is of the essence when cowboy games end. The audience might be there for a few more minutes. But if you're going to make a video and post a video, you better do it now. There is no time to discuss it, no time to sort of block it out, no time to rehearse it. It has to be done now. Strike while the iron is flaming hot, along with my emotions. And by the way, just so you know, if you don't already, I take these Cowboy games way too seriously. My emotions 
during and after are as real as you can get. I'm not a showman. None of this is for show. My pride is on the line with my team. I'm up against two big cowboy haters on Undisputed. Keyshawn Johnson, Richard Sherman. I love working with them. I love sparring with them. But they just spew hate all over me when the Cowboys lay a 42 to 10 egg. So I knew what was coming, obviously, at that point. But my point to you is what you're seeing of me throwing the jersey in the trash is extremely all too real. I just tell Ernestine, I'm going to throw the jersey in the trash. She says, okay, I'll shoot it. And she takes her position. And she says, are you ready? And I say, I've never been more ready. And she says, I'll just stomp my foot one time and you go. And she stomps and I stomp in the door. And I hold up my DAC jersey for all to see. And I fire it as hard as I can fire it into the trash. Not that easy to make the jersey stick right down the fairly small mouth of the trash can. But I do it because I'm so spilling over with anger. I fire all of my anger into the trash can. Then I... This past Sunday night, I took along my Micah jersey. My oh Micah, 11 from heaven. He went missing again. I might have to start calling him Missing Parsons. Not Missing Person, but Parsons. Micah, where were you, man? It's three straight games against San Francisco with zero sacks. Sunday night, you had all of two pressures. I can't even remember the two, but after you had five plus pressures in each of the previous nine games and you had two against Brock Purdy, come on, this is it, man. Money gets pushed to the middle of the table. Nowhere to be found. Missing Parsons. I thought about throwing Micah's jersey in the trash, but I held off. Still love him, still believe in him, still need him. I slung it back over my shoulder and I stalked out of my kitchen. This was one take. Kaboom. Post. And I left my number four jersey in the trash. This is Hank from Waterloo, Iowa. Do you work out extra hard following a cowboy loss? Do I ever? I'll never forget Danny White, who tried and tried and tried, finally failed to replace Roger Staubach as the next Cowboy quarterback. Danny White telling me once that after he had a five-interception day at home against the New York Giants, who were not that good at that point, he went straight to the Cowboy weight room and lifted until he couldn't lift anymore. That always stuck in my psyche. 
that's what I do. So this past Monday, I'd already scheduled to have a lunch with Richard Sherman after the show. He had to tape his podcast. And then around 1130, we we're going to go to lunch. Usually on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I don't lift weights until around five o'clock. But because Richard needed to go at 1130 as opposed to having some kind of brunch right after the show, and because I badly needed a nap at some point in the afternoon, I barely slept Sunday night into Monday morning when I get up at 2 a.m., I thought, okay, I'm just going straight home and I'm going straight to the weights. And I had one of the best weight workouts I have ever had in my life because my adrenaline was flowing along with my anger. I took it out on the weights. There is no better way that I know of to release that kind of anger than to lift heavier and heavier and heavier until you can no longer lift your own arms. In a way, it's a form of self-flagellation, I guess. You punish yourself. You physically exhaust yourself for loving that football team to a fault. So yes, Hank, that's exactly what I do. This is Bruce from, speaking of, Dallas, who asks, how long do you run in the morning? Okay, again, get up at two. I read the overnight stuff. I stretch till 2.30 sharp. I'm on the treadmill at 2.30 sharp, and I run until 3.30. I build up to a Sunday crescendo because starting on Tuesday, Monday, I just ride the exercise bike because I've run so hard on the weekend. But starting Tuesday, I, I go very gradually. I'm basically just jogging on the treadmill on Tuesday morning. But by Sunday, I build into a crescendo in which I try to set my one-hour distance record on the treadmill. So however far I can go in one hour would be my record, which is right at six miles, which has always tormented me because if I go outside to run, I can very easily run eight miles in an hour in one hour, because I can average just right around eight minutes a mile, which is not that hard to do. And I can easily finish at much under eight. So I can go, I can go farther than eight miles in one hour outside. And I still haven't ever figured out why, but it's much more exhausting to me, much more difficult to run six miles on a treadmill. I don't know why, but that's what I shoot for on a Sunday. But on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, when I have finished running from 2.30 to 3.30 a.m., I am steeled against the day. I am ready for anything. My juices and my endorphins are flowing. I am awake, and I don't think I could get awake without that run. I am alive, and I don't think I would feel nearly as alive without that run. I am so ready after that for whatever 
Keyshawn and Richard and Michael Irvin can dish out. I'm ready for anything on Undisputed. And then, of course, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, post-show, probably around the 4 to 5 o'clock hour, I lift my weights. But on my cardio, I do not miss a day. It's seven days a week, every week. I do, as Bill Belichick would say, no days off. This is Jerry from Chicago. And I've gotten this question before, so I'm going to give it sort of a double byline here. I've also gotten this question from Dan from Perth Amboy, New Jersey. So we got Jerry from Chicago, Dan from Perth Amboy, New Jersey, who both ask, what do you pack in that bag that you bring to work? Hmm. Okay, I will tell you. I have a Tumi bag, a little black Tumi bag. It's not Gucci. I don't lead the league in ostentation. It's not neon designer. But it's top of the line when it comes to function and effectiveness and efficiency. It's got all kinds of pockets and compartments in it. I think it is the best bag on the market when it comes to function. So, I always in my bag carry my Wayne chain that Lil Wayne gave me. And I always in my bag carry my two watches that I alternate on air. One's a Seiko that I bought in 2005 and it became my TV good luck charm. I wear it often. Another is a Rolex that I got not because I bought it, it was given to me. So I have those two watches encased in my black bag. I wear a, a G-Shock watch to exercise and play golf in. I always put several Quest protein bars in my bag. I always put several Nature Valley granola bars in my bag. As I've told you before, I believe in taking what you eat to work. Don't be a prisoner of what might come available if somebody brings in a bunch of bagels or brings in a bunch of this or that. Don't fall prey or victim to that. Take your what you're going to eat and eat just that. I always take one protein shake, muscle milk. It's about 40 grams of protein very low in, in fat and sugar. I always take one diet Mountain Dew and only one. It is the breakfast of champions. It is the nectar of the caffeine gods. Just one a day. It's my lone vice, but I do love it. And it does get me ready for Undisputed. I take one bagel. I don't recommend it if you're trying to lose weight, but I've just run pretty hard to very hard for an hour. And I just need some carbohydrate substance in my system to get me through two and a half hours of extreme energy debate. And for the show, 
for sipping purposes during the show, hydrating purposes during the show, I take one, what's called sparkling ice, black cherry flavored, has zero sugar, zero fat. It probably has zero anything but taste. It's just sort of flavored water. But I sip it every break during the show to stay hydrated. In my little black bag, I always carry a picture from 2006 of me and Ernestine at dinner, 54th and Broadway with my late mother sitting across from us. She took the picture, actually, a little Chinese restaurant. I just like the picture, another good luck charm picture. Ernestine literally gave me a good luck charm back in 2009 for a one-on-one debate that I had with Chad Johnson. I think he was then Chad Ochocinco, if I remember correctly. But we went to Cincinnati on their off day ahead of their opening game that Sunday. Bengals at home. And Ernestine knew I was going to battle. So for some reason, she gave me a a miniature little toy T-Rex, as in, go get him, like you're the T-Rex in this. I still keep that in my bag. Is it another good luck charm? I'm always carrying the list of topics that I've worked on the night before. I'm, I'm carrying lots of research papers that I've scribbled together the night before. I'm obviously carrying in my black bag my wallet, my house keys, my car key, and my phone. And always in my black bag, I have 15 or 20 of these blue papermate pens that I have wielded on air since I first started on cold pizza September 6th of 2004. My lucky blue pens. That, Jerry and Dan, is exactly everything that I have in my little black to me bag. Howard from Atlanta asks, what does your dressing room look like inside? My dressing room is very nice, but pretty plain. And I will explain why. It's not decorated with pictures on the wall because we can't put pictures on the wall of our dressing rooms because we're in a great building here on the Fox lot. But even though it has been revamped and revitalized many times, it's still an older building. FS1 has outgrown the available space. So what happens that is that on the weekends, the Saturday and Sunday stars at Fox or FS1 just don't have enough dressing room space available. So occasionally they have to use my dressing room and everybody else's dressing room down on what's dressing room row on the first floor of this building. By the way, my original dressing room, when I first got here in 2016, just before September 6th and our launch, as fate would have it, they put me in the same dressing room that my man, Michael Irvin, 
had occupied, had inhabited way back in 2002 when I used to occasionally do what was called Best Damn Sports Show here on Fox Sports Net, which preceded FS1. And on the days that I would do the show with Michael, he would occasionally invite me to come sit with him in his dressing room. He had a thousand pair of shoes, no Jordans, but dress shoes built all these racks on the wall. I, I've never seen that many shoes before. He now kids me about how many Jordans I have, but I'm not even in the galaxy with how many dress shoes he has had or how many suits for that matter Michael has had. But I used to sit with him in the same dressing room that they put me in when I first came here in August of 2016. That felt fateful to me in a great way. So because we can't hang pictures, I do have one picture in my dressing room and it stands against the wall on my desk. You should know what it is. It is from the 1998 Game 6 of the NBA Finals. My man, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, holding the pose in Utah as the ball is swishing through the nets, excuse me, the net. And in the picture shot from the far end of the floor, you can see the horrified looks of dozens of Utah Jazz fans up in these sort of end zone stands as they realize he has done it to them again. He is holding the pose at the free throw line after a little push off on Brian Russell with Scottie Pippen over on the wing with his hands up like, I'm open, and Michael completely ignoring him because he's Michael Jordan. He was going to take that shot no matter what. He was going to swish that shot no matter what. He was going to hold that pose no matter what because he had just stolen the ball from Carl Malone in the corner at the far end of the floor, dribbled it all the way up by himself and said, I got this. What a way to end a career. Six finals with six finals MVPs. I know he played this ceremonial couple of years in Washington after taking three years off. But that was it. I was there courtside for the greatest Jordan moment ever. That stands up on my desk. And I take a look at it every morning when I walk in the door and I think, that's it. That's what I aspire to do, is to be like Mike. Also in my dressing room, I do have 20 pair of my Jordans, about 20 pair of my Jordans. I do have a closed rack in my dressing room with my outfits for the next two, three, four, five days, depending on how deep into the week we are. Also on the desk, randomly, there are a couple of bottles of wine. I don't drink. I don't drink wine. They're very cool bottles. I was given them as gifts, and I should re-gift them to somebody else, but I just think they look cool. They give the room a little dignity, so I leave them. 
It's also a trophy on the desk that we won back in 2016 for, you might remember it, the movie theater commercial that I shot with the great Morris Chestnut, who gets blown up, quote unquote, in the commercial. If you remember it, we won an award for that. That trophy stands on my desk. along with a lucky little tree that Ernestine gave me, and along with a lucky heart-shaped rock that my wife gave me. I have a great couch. I have a great table. I have a great fridge. On it, it says Skip's Diet Dew Fridge, but I don't keep dew in the fridge per se, from day to day, I bring my own diet do one a day, every day. So it's pretty plain. It is very quiet. And I love my dressing room. Much of my creativity transpires in that dressing room every morning between about 4 and 6 a.m. L.A. time. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is Howard from Long Beach, as in California, who asks, what's the update on your screenplay? Howard, I did write and complete my screenplay. I wrote it miraculously quickly. I rarely like anything that I write, especially on a grander scale. In my whole life, I've liked two things I've written on the grander scale. I told you earlier about my book, God's Coach. That was the first one. This screenplay entitled Savior is the second game, the the second thing that that, that I love maybe to a fault. The weirdest thing about this screenplay, Howard, is that I can't really remember writing it because it wrote itself in under a month. We had a hiatus, you might recall, in the summer, and I kept saying, I got to write it. I got to write it. I had started it on a previous vacation six months earlier. Over a couple of days, I, I sort of scuffled through the first three scenes, and I didn't really like them because I wasn't sure what I was doing or where I was heading but I did have a start. And then I took a trip in this past July on hiatus to Oklahoma City for my annual week with my high school friends to play golf. And on the way home, on the flight home, I opened my computer and I started to clean up those first three scenes. And then I got home and I caught fire. 
really the next three weeks, I wrote the entire screenplay and it's feature length. You can scoff at this, but I just felt powered by a higher power. I, I wrote feverishly. For once, I really like and believe in everything about this screenplay, this creation of mine. I believe in the structure of it. I believe in the characters and their development. I believe in the dialogue. I believe in the action. And it is filled with some shocking action. I believe in its denouement, its final scene. And in the end, I believe in its controversy because it is extremely, extremely controversial. I have no idea if I could ever get this movie made because it is so deeply controversial on so many levels that I'm not yet comfortable divulging. I have shared this screenplay with two actor friends of mine who have both written many scripts. One of them won the Academy Award for a script that he wrote. They have it now. Maybe in the next week or so, I'll hear back from them as they critique, react. But in the end, I'm, I'm proud that I wrote it, and I'm extremely content with what I wrote, and I will keep you posted. This is Robert from Solana Beach, California. Who do you admire or look up to the most in life? From time to time, I try to answer these questions on this show. But Robert, the sad truth and the real answer to this question is nobody. I wish I had a storybook story for you that he or she took me under his or her wing and inspired me or I look up him or to her I my life hasn't gone that way never had a father around much when he was around he put me down tried to tear me down so I never had any father figure to take his place my junior high basketball coach who was 10 years older than me became like a big brother to me I had great times with him he taught me to compete He taught me to compete. We competed in everything. Like go for the throat compete. But he was even crazier in many ways than my father was, my real father. So I never had a mentor. I never had a, this is how you do it. I went away to school to Vanderbilt. Never even been to Vanderbilt. Nobody said, Take this course or do it this way or be careful about this or you should do try that. I remember my freshman year at Vanderbilt, I was just so lost. I took biology 
pre-med kids were taking biology who were going to become prominent surgeons. And I took biology because I thought, well, I don't know anything about biology. Well, I didn't. I, I graduated cum laude despite the C I made in biology, which was actually the best C I made, the best grade I made in my four years at Vanderbilt University competing with pre-med kids in a subject I knew nothing about and really cared very little about. I made a C. I was so proud of that C. Joined a fraternity, Phi Kappa Sigma there just to play sports. We had big brothers that take you under their wings, so to speak. Mine was Jimmy Clark. He's still a very good friend of mine from Shelbyville, Tennessee. But he's just a friend. He never advised me. He was never a sounding board. We were just the same. We were friends. Guy I grew up reading in what was then called the Daily Oklahoman, the columnist Frank Boggs. He, he supported me all through my high school days into college offered advice here or there, but never, this is how you do it. He, he didn't really take me under his wing. If I asked, he would give his two cents. Got into television, no mentor. Nobody said, let me show you. No, there was none of that. There's no producer, no big brother figure that I worked with on a show. I just figured it out on the fly on my own. Again, do I, yes, I believe in a higher power. I've trusted God from the start for direction, inspiration. I told you last week, I was pretty much raised by a woman named Katie Bell Henderson. And did I ever look up to her? I mean, she was my rock. But obviously, once I left her apron strings, I was on my own. I feel like I've been on my own since I was 14 or 15. And you know what? That made me who I am. Hardened me, toughened me, made me so much stronger. So, no, I, I don't really have that one person I admire or look up to. Just the man upstairs. This is Theo from Nevada. Are you a beach person with you living in LA? Theo, no beach boy am I. Now, I did grow up listening to the beach boys from Southern California as in the rock and roll group, probably way before your time. My personal favorite was Don't Worry Baby. But I was never a beach person. Right out of college, I lived briefly in Miami, as in Florida. No beach for me. Came out here for a while. My early 20s, no beach for me. I've been to Hawaii uh, three, four times. Didn't go to the beach. Ernestine, when we lived in New York, used to go to Puerto Rico in after the Super Bowl, so it'd be February, maybe early March. Puerto Rico has great beaches, best beaches, prettiest beaches I've ever seen. Nope, we didn't go lie and sip on the beach. 
I am a hardcore golfer. My fun in the sun is always on a golf course. Torturing myself, playing the world's hardest game. I just don't have any patience for just lying still and sipping on the beach. I have to be trying to figure out how to hit and then find that little white golf ball. I will say this. I I was a notorious sun person back in the 1990s golf course, sometimes just sitting out like in the backyard just to get a suntan. But then right on schedule, I wound up with two of those pre-cancerous basal cell growths. They had to cut out one on my arm, one on my hand, no fun, nothing to shrug off or trifle with. So now when I play golf, I bathe in what I call 90-proof sunscreen. I bathe in it. So I still enjoy the L.A. sun. It, It is the best. It is the most beautiful place to live. It is my favorite place to live, and I've lived all over this country. But I enjoy the L.A. sun only when I'm looking for my little white golf ball. That is it for episode 84. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week. 